This is Celebrating the Arts from ABC News Radio. Profiling the artists, artisans, and creators who inspire and enrich our lives. Here's your host, correspondent Aaron Katursky. This unprecedented, isolating year in American life has reached Thanksgiving. We're far, though, from the usual holiday fare, traffic, airport lines, disagreements around the table. It has been months since many of us have seen extended family. A holiday in a pandemic means no parade, less travel, fewer guests. After all the pandemic's anxiety, not to mention a tense election, we thought you might need a break. And so we present Celebrating the Arts. We're profiling artists, artisans, and creators who enrich our lives, bring us joy, make us feel. This year, perhaps as never before, our reading habits reflect our reality. We turn to books to inform, to teach, to distract. Some found catharsis in apocalyptic science fiction, a warm hug in romance novels, or an escape in fairy tales. My mom used to read me fairy tales when I was young, and I would always have these questions for her uh, after she, you know, after she said happily ever after, I'd have about 15 minutes of questions <laughs> for her. The logistics of of the castles and, you know, the motivations for the villains. And I was, just, I was very, very inquisitive. And uh, she finally got tired of me asking questions and said, Christopher, if you're so inquisitive, why don't you just write your own fairy tales? Jojo was a man who thought he was a loner, but he knew it couldn't last. Fans of Glee know Chris Colfer as Kurt Hummel. Coming home used to feel so good. I'm a stranger now in my neighborhood. To a younger set, he is the brain behind the Land of Stories, a best-selling series of fairy tale-inspired books for young readers. Though I may look the same way to you. I tried to write the first Land of Stories book when I was um, about seven years old. My grandmother, who lived down the street from me, uh, was my first editor. I would I would I'd write out a, a a page, which to me was a chapter back then. Um, and I would ride my bike over to, to grandma's house and she would, she'd edit it for me. And, uh, if she liked it, she would uh, keep it in a stack by her, by her chair. And if she didn't like it, she'd crumble it up in front of me and throw it in the trash can and say, Christopher, you can do better. Harsh. So, uh, <laughs> very harsh, but, um, I, th- I think in some way she, she really prepared me for, uh, for what, uh, you know, what, what the publishing world is like. <laughs> the Land of Stories follows a pair of 12-year-old twins, Alex and Connor, who are magically sucked into a book of wonder and magic, populated by characters they've known from reading. The first book, the the story is exactly the same. Um, I uh, Fortunately, I learned a lot more words to use from, from the age of seven to uh, uh, 20 when I wrote it. So uh, there's a, there's a, there's a stronger vocabulary uh, in the story, but um, no, it, it is, it is the same story. And in fact, I have, I have um, illustrations that I drew when I was eight of, um, of the characters that look very similar to the way that the cover ended up looking. Alex and Connor are, these have been in your mind since you were that young. Yeah. Yeah. They were my first imaginary friends. What happens to these characters, who they meet, how they survive, these are the adventures Colfer said he wanted to have when he was a kid. Every generation kind of wants their their own story, you know. Uh, like, like for my generation, it was the Harry Potter series. Like that was that was our book series, and you know, before that, it was like people, you know, they 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 embraced the Narnia series. And um, I think kids can be kind of um, possessive and and territorial a little bit. And I think the Land of Stories really is it's theirs. 
um, right now because it's it's still new and fresh and up and coming. The Land of Stories series puts recognizable modern day characters into the enchanting realm of classic fairy tales to imagine what happens after Happily Ever After. I have dyslexia, so reading has always been has not been always easy for me. So I, I try to write in a way that if kids have have a hard time reading, my books will be easy for them to 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 read. I I, I try to set each scene almost like a script where the kids know where things are and who's there before you get into the, the, the meat and the potatoes of, of, of the, of, of the scene. Um, Cause when I was a kid, that was always much easier. In the interest of disclosure, I have an eight year old daughter whose attention never wavered through more than 400 pages of the first book, the wishing spell. Colfer told us writing for him is therapy a creative outlet for a still active imagination. I was about three quarters of the way through um, my new book, A Tale of Witchcraft, that, that recently just came out um, right when the pandemic hit. So the last quarter of the book was was the uh, toughest to write because 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 just all the uncertainty that was going going around regarding the pandemic. It, it, it's just interesting that when things like the, like things like the, the coronavirus hit, um, it you know, it makes it it's so difficult to to create but it's also so important to create like like there really is it's so there's so uh a few times when i'd say that as as creatives like we're obligated to to work and to you know fill the world with, with stories to inspire and educate and and all that and uh this is this is and certainly in my lifetime this has been stories have been needed more more than ever i was gonna say we all need to escape into a fairy tale i think yeah yeah. And that's that's I, I remember when um, when I was writing the fifth Land of Stories book, uh, uh, an author's odyssey, my mother passed away right in the middle of of, of my writing process. And um, I had to learn to fall into the escapism of my own art. Um, otherwise, I would have never gotten through it. Um, and I think that book actually ended up being the best one um, because not only was I trying to create a story for other people, but I so desperately needed a story at that time. You know, if there's any other artists out there who are having a hard time, I, I'd say that that would be my, my only piece of advice I could give is try to fi- try, try to fall into the escapism of your of your own art. I, and I, I tell you, it's not just kids and COVID. It's it's all of us. We're counting on you, Chris. We, we need we need you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, me and me and, and there, there, there are plenty of other people that, that can contribute. <laughs> the Land of Stories series has sold six million copies. Colfer has been writing prequels, a tale of magic, spent weeks on the bestseller list. And the second book in the series, A Tale of Witchcraft, was published last month and debuted at number one. And there is more to come. My favorite part of writing is is the moments right before you put pen to paper, where you're you're just sitting there, you're just alone with your thoughts, and you just just kind of download uh, what the story is going to be. Um, and I usually see things in in pictures first. I, I I see images like a movie trailer in in my mind, and then um, I try my best way. I I try my best way the best way I can to link those images together and create a story. So that's really my my writing process. Um, or I, I should say that's my my um, creative process. My writing process is more like a cry for help. <laughs> um, I, I I don't think there's any way that writing cannot not be tedious. It it is it is especially when you're you're staring at a blank page. But I always tell kids who are or aspiring writers to just spit out whatever words you can and then take it from there. Uh, you just always you can always go back and perfect. Always go back and perfect. Um, but you'll never reach perfection. That's a myth. No no writer ever is like yes. That's perfect. Do you approach it then the same way as you would if you were 
stepping on stage to perform? It all came from the same place as a kid because uh, when I was when I was a child, writing and acting and performing were all just a matter of storytelling, and that was really what I was uh, most excited about was just was just telling stories in any any shape or form that I could. I, I, I do have a lot of frustration as an actor because um, I don't have the control of of um, of being an author. Um, and I started acting when I was very young, and that was that was that was a lesson I had to I kind of learned the hard way. It was that oh no, this is just like. I got to do this. And, and I, there's really no, you've no say over the story or, or, you know, what your, what your character does, or, you know, especially if you're doing something like Shakespeare or, you know, a, you know, a, a Neil Simon play that's been, been around for forever. Um, but some, I mean, nowadays, sometimes it's, it's just nice to get a script and be like, Oh, I don't have to write. Great. I'll, I'll say these words. These words are fine. <laughs> you may feign exhaustion, but Colfer has been churning out two books a year for the last eight years. And these are hardly frivolous pages. Colfer told us he is always mindful of his young readers and their world as much as the fantasy realm his books inhabit. The Land of Story series was all about escapism and giving kids, you know, uh, uh, just fun. Like, just to pick up a book and have an adventure. That was the main. And there were some morals and lessons sprinkled in throughout. But but really, the, the biggest, uh, my biggest goal was just to give kids an escape from reality. Uh, this new series, the Tale of Magic series, is um, hopefully... Hopefully it helps kids cope with reality uh, and everything in, in these new books is an allegory for for something. Um, in the first one, A Tale of Magic, magic was an, allegor- an allegory for oppression. Um, in A Tale of Witchcraft, the witchcraft was an allegory for mental health. Um, so um, I really enjoyed that. I, 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 I feel like I'm almost I'm almost like Winston Churchill um, in like a war room, like making up making these stories because I think the greatest uh, uh, thing we can do is, 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 is plant the seeds of, of compassion in, in the new generation. I think that really is how the world is going to change. For many of us, it has been months since we've packed into a crowded theater or concert space, waiting for the lights to go down and the live music to start blaring. And while some artists have taken their performances online during the pandemic, others took a more alfresco approach. ABC's Mike Dubusky takes a look at a summer of busking in New York City. If you've spent time in New York City at all, you know it's not exactly quiet here. About six in ten adults in the Big Apple actually report hearing problems because of the noise pollution, according to city data. But if you happen to find yourself in the right place at the right time, you might just catch something that cuts through the noise. This is a song called Traffic Lights, and the voice you're hearing belongs to Cloudy Love, the lead singer of a band called Pink Louds. My name is Cloudy, that is uh, spelled C-L-A-U-D-I, and uh, yeah, I am, I guess I'm the founder of Pink Louds, sure. She's also a guitarist and plays the kalimba alongside Raimundo Atal on keyboard and Mark Mosterin on bass guitar. The Pink Louds are street performers, or buskers, as they're occasionally known. Busking is the term, as uh, what you say, for like playing on the street or in public spaces. Street performance is a common sight in New York City. Whether it's a jazz singer on a street corner, or a spoken word poet in the subway, or in the Pink Louds case, a punk rock band in Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. As Cloudy explains, it's a Manhattan neighborhood with a long punk rock history. The community here in the East Village uh, is is very, very special. There's a 
there's definitely something here, and uh, and it comes from I think a lot of what happened in the in the seventies and eighties and all of the, the the punk and all, and all that that happened here. It's still. It's still very much alive. The Pink Clouds got started back in 2015 after Cloudy and Mark got to know each other while working as music teachers at a school in Brooklyn. I was uh, kind of the full-time music teacher uh, and Cloudy was uh, the after-school uh, like rock and roll teacher. At a party the two of them went to in the borough's Bushwick neighborhood, Cloudy met Raymundo. And I came to the U.S. because I am a student at Columbia University. So I'm working on my Ph.D. He's a brilliant um, climate scientist. <laughs> I work on the environment and, and economics. Paul Raimundo is working on his PhD, and Mark is still teaching. For Cloudy, street performance has become a full-time gig. This is my day job. Like This is what I do for a living. I'm lucky enough that I can be a musician for a living, and I do it mostly by playing in the subways or on the street. <laughs> Clouds aren't exclusively buskers. They've played a number of bars and festivals around the city and have built up a substantial following in the five years they've been playing. They were actually planning to tour this year, that is, until this past March. Breaking right now, the coronavirus pandemic continuing to spread throughout our area. This could last all summer long. For a time, Cloudy and the Pink Clouds relied on their fans on social media while their normal venues were closed down. They hosted live shows over video chat, complete with the appropriate busking decor. From home, I kind of turned my house into a, a studio, like a TV studio. I had like a giant uh, traffic light and a big subway map because we're, I wanted to like give like, you know, the street feeling to the, to the whole thing. Even though everything around me was falling down, I, I, I was able to like, you know, kind of like block a lot of the, the darkness out by doing that. I play the piano, I play it well, you should watch me and don't tell. In June, as the weather got warmer, Pink Clouds gradually began moving their performances back outside, eventually landing where we are now, in Tompkins Square Park. I tried it and uh, they didn't kick me out, and, uh, and, and I just fell in love with the place. For their fans, the move was a breath of fresh air. Being present at a concert is not the same experience as sitting on your couch. That's Charlie Crespo, also known as Every Night Charlie. My former editor at one of my newspapers called me every night because I went to concerts every night. In other words, I had a very busy social life. Crespo runs the Manhattan Beat, a blog that follows the city's music scene. He says Pink Clouds were pioneers in bringing music back to the streets of New York this summer. Pretty much saved the summer in uh, downtown Manhattan by playing in Tompkins Square Park two and three times a week. They were probably the first. Their music is energizing, it was exciting, and for anybody who passed through the park, it was just the most wonderful experience to hear live music again. It's not just Pink Clouds either. Crespo tells me buskers in general are filling a big musical gap left by traditional concerts and stage performances. Live music being the oldest form of entertainment, even before theater, even before sports, touches us in ways that none of these other activities can touch us. Cloudy tells me the audience can grow to over 100 people, depending on the day, and they do their best to keep things safe. They keep socially distant. It's a really big space. I know this is the radio, so you can't see how big the space is. It's huge. Pink Clouds has some smaller fans, too, Mark says. A lot of kids come and jump around and dance around with with us, with our dancers that we have dancing with us. And um, that is something we've never really had before as a band. You know, it's just this huge, like, child kind of following. You probably heard there that Pink Clouds has dancers. Well, that's because some of the shows that Pink Clouds puts on tell a story, and that's where Jamie Emerson comes in. They have some some 
songs that are related to like sort of New York City themed life. So like sardines in a can about how we're all so cramped, magical garbage, things like that are very New York centric uh, that we made puppets for. Jamie's a visual artist, a puppeteer, and today he's a dancing sewer rat too. He tells me the performance used to go even further. It's a bit frustrating for us because a big part of the shows, we were calling them immersive cabaret. And so the idea was literally to invade the personal space of the audience, which we did and was great before the pandemic, you know, and everybody really loved it. It made the whole show like something that you don't see from other bands. We find street performers playing in parks and subway stations. And I find that we're listening more than we used to. We're listening closely, we're listening deeper because it's touching us at a time when we really need this kind of soothing, healing experience. As for Cloudy, she says Pink Clouds plan to keep performing outside as much as they can as the weather gets colder. And this park seems like the place to do it. It's special and you got like all the, you know, all, all the, the weird, crazy people and you got families, just like a wonderful mix of people all kind of getting by, you know, sometimes with a little bit of friction, but it's like that friction that makes life more, uh, more special, right? I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News, New York. When you hear the word art, what comes to mind? A painting? Sculpture? A piece of music, maybe? What about a plate of beautiful food? Or maybe a bowl of perfect chili? ABC's Jim Ryan has the unlikely story of a Texas artist and his dream of creating the perfect dish. When John Bonnell was born 50 years ago, his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas was that place out west, somewhere in the shadow of Dallas, 30 miles to its east. Boys like him were busy with G.I. Joe and fishing in the Trinity River. Bonnell liked that stuff too, but at the same time... My whole life I was always cooking with my parents. I've always loved it, but I never thought about it professionally. In my family, you, you go to high school and you go to college and culinary school is a vocational school. It just wasn't something we talked about. I don't think I would have been forbidden, but it, it, it just never showed up on a radar. So Bonnell did go to college, Vanderbilt University, came back to Texas and started teaching high school math and science. He liked the work, but wasn't crazy about the downtime. Three months off in the summer, I was having a hard time figuring out what to do with myself. The Food Network had just launched, and I was watching it nonstop. The original Essence of Emerald and Malto Mario and... There was some great shows on PBS, like the Great Chef series, and I was just addicted to this stuff. Hey, Emeril Lagasse here, and welcome to the Essence of Emeril. You know, for me, there's something very therapeutic about barbecuing, no matter what time of the year it is. You know, I love the whole drill. So John Bunnell turned his attention to cooking and was accepted at the New England Culinary Institute. In the same way that anyone can draw a stick figure, but not everyone can be a great painter, Anyone can make a sandwich, but not everyone can be a great chef. There are certain parts that anybody can learn. There's a scientific process of following a recipe, and if you do these exact steps, it will work. But there's a whole lot of artistic expression and seat-of-your-pants kind of cooking that goes on, too. And I think, I think you've got to have both. If you're into baking, you better be precise on your measurements, your time, and temperature. But to, to create a dish and come up with a, a, a visual presentation, something that tastes great, to get it out in a hurry, to get it out 
and something you can replicate over and over. There's a, there's a lot of math, science, and art that all have to flow together to, to make it work commercially. And while a painter strives for visual beauty, a musician for the perfect pitch, chefs work with all the senses. It's everything. There's sound, there's sights, there's taste, there's smells, texture, all of it counts. From the sight of your mom's fried chicken to the smell of baked apple pie or the crunch of watercress to the sound of a steak on the grill. But more than just the five senses, artists like Bonnell stimulate emotions. Oh, don't you remember back in New Orleans, we had this one dish. The hard part about that dish is not making the dish. You can't recreate the experience you had. And with emotions come memories sparked by a specific taste or aroma. There's certain specific smells that take you back and you're very impressionable when you're a kid growing up. Everybody in, in New Orleans, when I lived there, Everybody said, well, that's not the best gumbo. The best gumbo is the one that my grandmother made. It's always what was happening at that time in your life when you were just so impressionable and those familiar smells, your parents or your grandparents, whoever was cooking, that's the stuff that sticks to you, those heirloom recipes that, that really you know, speak to your soul and you, and you never lose that. But in the same way that Monet is said to have despised some of his best-loved water landscapes, and Billy Joel is quoted as calling one of his most popular songs horrendous, John Bonnell is not a fan of everything that he cooks. There is no way to satisfy everybody, and if you just try to put all your favorite stuff on the menu, then you will be your own best customer. You have to design a menu that not only fits what you like to make, but also what the customer wants, and then to put it all together, you also have to make money at it. Sort of like an artist on a paid commission. And just as a painter works with color and light, a musician with melody and tune, a practitioner in the art of cooking has a palette of flavors, pun intended. Comes down to ingredients. For me, I absolutely love things like crab meat, oysters, wild game, something unique that's seasonal, that's that's not always easy to come by, not sitting on the grocery store shelf. I love when it's, oh man, it's, early spring and, and ramps are coming up when those wild onions are coming in. Something you look forward to. Those are the kind of things that get me excited. As for this holy American season of the year. Thanksgiving is one of the easiest meals to put out because you can do almost everything ahead of time except for the turkey. And the turkey doesn't have that many steps to it. But let's say you aren't even a sous chef or an apprentice to a sous chef. Bonnell says, don't worry about it. To me, Thanksgiving is not nearly as much about exactly what the food tastes like but that you're bringing family together. You're all sitting at the table together. So yeah, I want my turkey to be absolutely perfect. I'm a chef, of course, and we're gonna go very elaborate on some of the sides and stuff that we do. But the important part is that everybody's together. That's, that's the great part. So if, if your meal is so intricate that you're in the kitchen the whole time and don't get to see your family, I feel like you're missing the point on holidays like that. John Bunnell is the owner of Bunnell's Fine Texas Cuisine, Waters Restaurant, and Buffalo Brothers, all of them in his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas. Jim Ryan, ABC News. It's a technique that has been around since the first century, blowing puffs of air through a long pipe into a fiery hot ball of molten glass and then shaping it into an everyday object or a work of art. ABC's Dana Schaefer takes us inside the age-old craft of glass blowing. Have you ever wondered where the wine glass you hold in your hand comes from or who made it? Most likely the glass you hold today was made in a factory. But at a time, glassblowing was a great craft, and it's still very much alive today. Some of the world's most gorgeous hand-blown glass comes from Italy, and they're recognized for being the holders of Moreno glass, 
one of the most famous and prized possessions for art collectors to this day. The act of gathering is kind of like picking up honey with a five-foot Q-tip. Meet John Zapp. He's a glassblower and instructor in New Jersey at the Morris County School of Glass. He was so fascinated by the unique art after he took a class that he decided to make it into a career. My friend actually asked me, do you want to take a glassblowing class? And I said, what's glassblowing? And I just never stopped. As you watch John work, the molten glass looks like honey. And if you get too close, the intense heat could singe the small hairs off your arms. So our furnaces here are run with a pneumatic door. It's a top-loading furnace. The furnace burns hot at 2,000 degrees. And because of that, glassblowers need to understand the techniques to keep one another safe. Glass itself is very much like a dance with the material. So everything you do is a fluid motion. It's all supposed to be done very gracefully. John and his partner move the molten glass over to the bench for the next steps. So we keep these wooden blocks soaking in water 24 hours a day. And the smell of burning cherry wood fills the air like a campfire. I've been working really hard for the past 20 years to develop my skills and my abilities to work with the material. And I really enjoy passing that on to people who want to try it. During COVID, it's a lot less likely you'll be going to holiday festivals and galleries this season. Places where you would normally purchase hand-blown glass and other crafts. And where artists and suppliers rely on their items to sell like Mehmet Kezdel. I rely on many shows in the States that I do, and this is the major, the biggest one in Bryant Park. But I used to do four shops in the four corners of the parks where I downsized. And as you know, these are not normal days for you, for glass blowers, or for any craftspeople. Logistically, it's a problem for them to be here. Financially, it could be a problem for them to be here. And producing them, them is one thing, and selling them is another quality. Sure, you can buy these beautiful pieces online, but there is nothing like that personal sell. You don't know your clientele. You don't know what to say. I mean, I am here. If I see a customer and they talk to me, through their eyes, I can, I can kind of sense what they need and what they want. There's no way I can tell that online. From the glass glistening in the sunlight, filling his small shop with a rainbow of colors, to the magical sensation of holding an item in your hands. You really have to be here to see it, to feel it, to touch it. Things are not as they were, and you'll probably do most of your holiday shopping online. But you can still give the gift of glass, and it's guaranteed to be one of a kind, each piece being unique in its own way. I saw one of the uh, bumblebee to London, uh, and I was able to ship it to this business. But be aware that just like making the glass, a lot goes into packaging it too. Small shops like Mehmet's take time to practically mummify their items to make sure it arrives to you safely. In these days of COVID-19, looking at the glass half full, you can still give beautiful handmade, handcrafted gifts to your friends and family this holiday season. And not only will you have given a unique and special gift, you're supporting an artist in a time when art needs your help. And who knows? You may even want to learn how to become a glassblower yourself. Dana Schaefer, ABC News. This has been a tough year for professional musicians used to playing to packed crowds in bars and clubs and theaters and arenas. 
The pandemic has sidelined their livelihoods. Some groups played online to keep fans interested. Others wrote and performed with video conferencing software. Some are even creating new albums and performances by literally phoning it in. One of those groups has been around for more than 50 years. It is still making new music. And ABC's Andy Field caught up with one of the founding members via Zoom, of course. You're about to hear one of the most famous trumpet players on the planet. Now, if he doesn't sound familiar, it's because you're used to hearing him with a group of other guys. And when you put his horn together with the rest of them, well, it sounds like this. As I was walking down the street one day. Lee Lockmain is one of the group Chicago's founding musicians. And he can't remember a time in the last half century when he and the band were not touring the country. First summer, we have not been on the road in 50 years, 54 years. You know, so we're chomping at the bit to get back out there, some, any sense of normality. Lee and Chicago didn't just put their feet up and wait. They created virtual concerts from home, put them on Facebook. We decided to do some of these Zoom videos, with what are called Zoom videos, and they went over really well. We had no idea they would go over as well. People are really hungry for entertainment. I think our social media went up like 13,000% or something. Everybody thinks it was live, and they were mistaken. You have to keep up the illusion. So trumpet player Lee fired up his smartphone and recorded what musicians call a click track so everyone could keep the beat. I sent the song with the click to each guy and they recorded it on their iPhone. We sent it to our videographer, put it together, and it made it look like we were all doing it simultaneously. Those songs are so old, we, you know, we could play them backwards. <laughs> I am very fortunate to be able to be doing what I am doing at this age. Normally, we uh, retired and doing something else and reliving, you know, the past memories. We're able to create new memories by still enjoying what we do and, and wanting to come out and see us play live. I love it. You know, I keep saying this, but we can't wait to get back out on the road. Despite the joy of performing, Chicago's trumpet leader Lee Lockney knows thousands of musicians aren't as fortunate. His advice? I always say just don't give up. Don't let people talk you out of your passion because you have no audience. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You might as well get a job. Not if you don't want to. Don't think that it's not going to come back. It's going to come back. It's going to come back to some semblance of normality. No, no, no. It's, that's not the part. I, I, it's, excuse me. It's this. This was Chicago preparing a Christmas album last year. They have a new one coming out this winter on Rhino Records, put together remotely in everyone's garage band studios. They're also redoing their classic Carnegie Hall live album because the technology is now so much better than when they recorded it back in the 70s. That's nice. Yeah. You know, with all the, the new capabilities that we have electronically, we can make that sound even better. Now I'm going to be able to improve that sonic ability and really make the album come alive. Until then, Lee Lochnane and his Chicago band members are glancing at their watches and waiting for this to end. Does Lee Lochnane in Sedona, I'm Andy Field in Washington, 
ABC News. This is Celebrating the Arts from ABC News Radio. Profiling the artists, artisans, and creators who inspire and enrich our lives. Here's your host, correspondent Aaron Katursky. We've made it to Thanksgiving, when usually we take comfort in the surroundings of family, a plentiful table, and the anticipation of the holiday season ahead. This year, we swoon, protests in the streets, fear and worry from a pandemic, tension and anxiety about the election. We figured it was time for something a little less stressful. We're nourished this Thanksgiving by more than turkey. Artists, writers, musicians, sculptors, painters, and craftsmen, they all nourish us through their work. And so this Thanksgiving, we're giving thanks for them, for the beauty they create, the inspiration they deliver, and the guide path they've provided through this intense year. Celebrating the arts takes us first this hour to Kansas City, a place synonymous with jazz. E.J. Becker has been exploring a century of music, a seemingly endless stream of talent, and an old cliche that might actually be true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Performer, composer, historian, and educator. Which one is the most important? And can one exist without the others? All right, give me the one again. Performer, Performer composer, composer, historian, and educator. educator. Huh. Just sitting, talking to him. You'd never think Bobby Watson is a living legend. The most important one for me has always been performer. Because to get your skill set up to a level where you have a marketable skill, other opportunities will come. Indeed, if you think about the names that have made Kansas City a mecca for jazz over the last 100 years. Count Basie, Charlie Parker, Pat Metheny, Gamad Aladdin, Walter Page. So many of them made their names as performers. Bobby has too. But jazz in this town, like some of its biggest names, has always been multi-dimensional. Listen, babe, what you done to me? You're the only one that wanna see. You got to give me what you got. Kansas City was a wide open town which means that during the depression when there weren't jobs and there weren't opportunities in other cities this city was full of clubs jazz club after jazz club after jazz club they were the icing on the cake you could find alcohol gambling and prostitution and all that was available in kansas city so jobs were here for musicians Jazz historian Larry Kapitnik says those jobs, an exceptional music teacher at Lincoln High School, and the black vaudeville circuit made Kansas City a destination for talent in the 1920s. And the music played 24 hours a day. They had gigs in the morning, in the afternoon, at night. So a young musician had plenty, plenty of opportunities to hone their skills. Bobby Watson grew up in Kansas City and first found jazz in high school where I got a chance to discover Leslie Young, Count Basie, and of course, Charlie Parker. My high school history teacher who played drums at night turned the second half of our history class into jazz history. Bobby already played the piano and wanted to play the sax like his dad. But dad and the school music teacher made him start with the clarinet. I was 
always adding little extra notes. But said when you turned 17... That half a year with my history teacher... You can pick up the sax. ...was also my discovery. I was a jazz musician and that there were a whole lot of people like me that came before me. And the pieces began to fall into place. Another Kansas City boy and sax player was high school age when he was figuring out his path in jazz, too. Count Basie's band played at the Reno Club at 12th and Cherry, where the police station parking lot is today. But historian Larry Kapitnik says Charlie Parker did it by sneaking into the balconies or backstage in Kansas City's hundreds of clubs. And Parker could go and get in the balcony or stand around back and hear Lester Young and the other great musicians of uh, Count Basie's orchestra. Parker's most famous saxophone is the first thing you see today when you walk into the American Jazz Museum in the historic 18th and Vine District. From the Massey Hall concert in Toronto with Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Bud Powell, Charlie Mingus, they're, they're all there. One of the most famous concerts in jazz history. And tell me about the saxophone. It looks like it's... It's plastic. It's really plastic? It's plastic. You see, every now and then, Charlie Parker, Bird was without an instrument. Parker had a drug habit, and uh, he was known for hawking his sax to get money for drugs, and then just getting whatever saxophone he could for a gig. He even had close friends in Kansas City who kept a sax hidden in their home, so regardless of his state of mind, he'd always be able to play in his hometown. Charlie Parker, born and raised on the streets of flyover country, gave jazz new wings, and Bird took his skill and sound all over the world. His name, of course, is still tightly tied to this city. I hear that if you go to Europe and say you're from Kansas City, Charlie Parker's name comes up. If Charlie Parker took Kansas City jazz to the four corners of the earth, maybe Bobby Watson brought it back home. A degree from the University of Miami's renowned jazz program, his real education, as Art Blakey called it, as one of Blakey's jazz messengers, and two more decades traveling the world as a premier alto sax player, artist, composer, and collaborator. Some eight decades after Kansas City was a center of the jazz universe, Bobby Watson's vision was for a return to that glory. Bobby Watson called me on the phone and I'm looking at this Art Blakey record that he plays on. It's on my nightstand. Herman Mahari remembers it like it was yesterday. And he said, I want you to come to UMKC. You want you to come to Kansas City. Bobby Watson had, years before, answered a similar call from the University of Missouri, Kansas City to come home from out east, build a real jazz conservatory, and grow new talent to fill the clubs that had never disappeared. They were just waiting for a new dose of some good old talent. My education wasn't just the school, it was also the city. We attract students from all over the country to come here. I was learning as much on the scene when they come here as I was in the conservatory. There's places to play. There's jam sessions almost every night somewhere. You know, not every conservatory is in a place like that. Older musicians, they're looking for younger musicians to inspire them. As Art Blakey inspired Watson, as Buster Smith mentored Charlie Parker, and as Watson has grown the new generation of jazz artists, by combining the classroom and the stage in a town where just a few months ago, the joints were still hopping every night. We're just waiting now for 
the club to be able to open up safely. They're hurting everywhere. And when the clubs come back, they'll see the guys who know where home is. Logan Richardson, Dominique Sanders, uh, Ryan Lee, young players Eddie Moore, Herman Mahari. Guys who are now spread around the world, but have used lockdowns and closed clubs to hone their skills, self-publish new music, collaborate using technology, and prepare for that next trip back to that little cow town on the Missouri, one of the cradles of jazz, a cradle that's still rocking a century later. When you think of art, you might think of a painting or a sculpture. Fans of aviation are looking toward the sky for their inspiration for pieces of art to hang on the wall or from the ceiling or to furnish their executive office. But it's a smaller, inexpensive piece of art that's really getting attention. Here's ABC's Alex Stone in the California desert with the story of old airplanes being turned into art. Driving down a dusty dirt road in the California desert, fitting perfect with the country music on my radio. And then like a mirage in the Sahara, an incredible sight for any aviation enthusiast or av geek as we're known. And I'm really excited about what I'm going to see. In the endless horizon of desert weeds, first through the dust I can see the tails poking above the horizon. Then the bodies appear of hundreds of old airliners from small regional planes to giant Boeing 747s and military aircraft. Every plane has a story. A thousand flights coming and going every business day. Most are from eras gone by during the glamorous days of air travel. And today, the mighty clippers of Pan Am rise majestically from six continents for the far corners of the world. They've carried passengers or troops to the far reaches of the globe. Many are now missing their engines, or big chunks of the plane are missing altogether. It's an airplane boneyard. All around me, it's like a history of airlines. There are so many planes from 737s up to 747s, a lot of 747s, just giant planes, tails from all over the world, cargo planes, airliners from Asia, from Europe, from all over the U.S. I mean, this is, for somebody like me, this is amazing. It's a history of aviation in one place with ghosts of old air travel in the boneyards of the southwestern U.S. You'll see TWA, Pan Am, old logos from United and Delta Airlines. I'm pulling in to meet Dave Hall. This is incredible. Do you like it? How you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. Thank yeah. you for doing this. Yeah, no, Dave is the founder and CEO of MotoArt. He's become an icon in the world of aviation, not just among fans of planes, but the airlines themselves and airplane makers. Dave is her go-to man when it comes to repurposing old airplanes that are done flying and turning them into fine art, into furniture and less expensive but widely popular luggage tags all made out of the skins of old planes. This is the Beach 18. Wow. Uh, the Twin Beach. And this is a Catalina flying boat. Dave has a one-acre lot at this boneyard where he and his team bring in old planes to turn them around into highly sought-after pieces of art. And getting the chance to walk around his lot and the boneyard next to it full of old airliners 
was like a kid getting an entrance into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Every flying machine here has a story to it. We just passed a uh, Russian MiG. Uh, this is a uh, CH-47 Chinook. That's what's left of it. The uh, flooring we ripped out and used for a beautiful conference table that we built for Boeing. For 20 years, Dave has been collecting airplane pieces. His one-acre yard is full of intact planes, of wings, of ejection seats, all things that can be made into furniture and art that customers will pay top dollar to put in their homes or executive suites around the world. This is a very uh, special aircraft. This is a B-52 bomber and actually made the cover of Life magazine. Just incredible. And now to the novice eye, it looks like a hunk of junk, like scrap metal. But you look a little bit deeper into the rusted metal and there's a cockpit and so much history inside. It's a shame they even got this far. I mean, I found this in, a, in, in the woods in Ohio um, and, and brought it back here. We're going to preserve the cockpit portion of it and then the tail portion of it, we'll go ahead and skin it and offer them as plane tags. Plane tags, those are the gold mine of a business that Dave has tapped into. Luggage tags, which have given Dave a huge following from people around the world who can't afford a $30,000 coffee table, but they can spend 40 bucks on a piece of history. A small luggage tag made out of the skin of old airplanes that collectors keep, they trade, they sell like baseball cards. Now there's even a fan club of collectors of plane tags. This is the uh, uh, navigator's uh, ejection seats, and these would actually eject downward. And these ejection seats have become in high demand. People will pay top dollar to have an office chair or a piece of art in their home made out of an ejection seat. I think I am the largest collector of B-52 ejection seats outside the uh, U.S. government. And he has tons of them, lines of B-52 ejection seats that he's collected. His teams go through them quickly, making seats for those who place orders. Not, not probably the most comfortable. No, but, they, uh, but there's a lot of history. There's a lot of history. This, uh, speaking of history, is another uh, fantastic one. This is a World War II PBY Catalina. This really is, in many ways, I mean, using every last aspect of, of what you've got to be used again. Right. The, the cockpit goes away. You're using the skin. Right. You're not throwing away a lot of these planes. No, not, not a lot. We're just trying to give it a second life and, and tell a story for another day. You might be able to tell Dave's passion is the military planes, a history of them. They're much more rare than commercial planes that come into the boneyard every day. And this one. This one's very cool. This is a P-2 Neptune, also another historic aircraft. Yeah. And the P-2 Neptune, uh, this was a... Uh, um, part of the fleet that went and explored uh, Antarctica and they actually equipped it with skis so it land on the snow. He has so much history collected, loads of it to fulfill orders as they come in for whatever a customer wants. When I started the company uh, back in 2001, um, we actually called ourselves Propeller Art and we were going and, and collecting these old World War II propellers and shining them up and then it quickly evolved into, hey, you know, who started with a pencil drawing on a napkin. Let's make a wing desk and let's take a galley cart, make a bar out of it. And let's take an engine to sell and make it a reception desk. Look at them now as people in the industry push to get Dave to buy their old airframes to make art. He pays a pretty penny for the metal he buys. Looks like a lot of wings, a lot of rivets, all that right, sort of right. thing. These are all uh, vintage airframes. Um, these were all originally cloth covered. And what you're seeing is more of the skeletal look of the airframe. And we use these for desks and conference tables. And that's where it gets really cool for me, where I get to geek out. If I wasn't a reporter, I think I probably would have become an airline pilot. And as a reporter in my career, flight has played a big role in doing my job. 
there's something exciting about air travel. We jump into Dave's truck to drive out into the boneyard of commercial planes. The one we're passing here is this uh, N747A. That belongs to uh, NASA, and they use it for, for mostly parts. Uh, but that's a 747-100, I believe, which is the first series 747. And it belonged to Pan Am originally, I believe. In fact, it still says Clipper America by the nose. And this is where plane tags come into it. A few years ago, Dave wanted to come up with something that anybody could afford. And he came up with plane tags, little oval pieces of airplane skin with their original paint to be used as luggage tags or keychains. He never expected the response it would get. Yeah, when I was working, uh, gosh, it would have been about 15 years ago. It was very early on in the eight, uh, when I started MotoR, but we were working with a P51 Mustang, and which is really kind of a gray area right there. But it was a piece that was never usable; it was destroyed. And, and I'm like, well, let's just take the skin off this and make like, and I thought like a dog tag, you know, it'd be able to identify. But I'll call it a plane tag. And so I made myself a little prototype. I laser etched into it what it was and I put it on my keychain, and I used it on my keys for literally you know, 10 years, 15 years, whatever, how long it was. And finally one day, one day I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna do, uh, do this. So I bought an old punch press machine, and I made myself a die. And for Christmas, uh, you know, I came out with six different plane tags. I had a B-25 bomber, you know, I had a 747, you know, 767, an Airbus A320, and I launched it on Black Friday, and it will be five years ago this, this, uh, this November. And we saw real quick selling a $25 tag is a lot different than selling a $25,000 piece of art. And it opened up a whole nother market for us. Plane tags have exploded online, doing huge sales, becoming a money machine for Dave and his company. They're releasing new tags every week to a large and growing fan base. You could hear his crews there working behind us. They were taking the skin off of an old United Boeing 747. I grew up flying on United 747s. I might have flown on that exact plane. And that's the thing. People have personal connections to the planes. As we're pulling up right now, I've flown on a lot of United 747s. And this is what you would see in, in Hong Kong or in Beijing or flying out of San Francisco. Pretty incredible. But now its cockpit has been cut out. Many of the windows and landing gear gone. It's sitting on its belly. N198UA flew for United from the late 90s until about a decade ago. Now in the desert, its tail separated from the main body of the jumbo jet. The seats and TV screens still inside. Dave's team is cutting panels out of the plane to make them into plane tags. The chunks of the old United 747 will become luggage tags or keychains. They're removing the skin now off the, off the aircraft. We literally just remove the sections in between the structure of the aircraft. We'll demill it, we'll cut some fresh edges on it, um, and then we take it under a polished wheel. What started as an idea for an inexpensive Christmas gift a few years ago exploded. Customers around the world now eagerly await new releases that come out about once a week. Fans try to collect them like baseball cards, not just each plane, but tags in every color. Dave is big on social media. That's how his team has gotten a global following. In fact, they have their own fan club now. Paul Davies created the fan club for plane tags. He's in Washington State. We met up on Zoom. He bought his first plane tag in a store in Seattle, and then he just kept buying. What was the uh, the first one that you got? Do you remember? Yeah, the HU-16 Albatross. It's this one right here. Uh, that's the first one I got, and I thought that would be it, and I just could not stop. 
Paul, like many of the fans, shows off his plane tags on a display rack that MotoArt makes out of old airplane structures. It was, at first it was just the variety, just the fact that, oh, this is a different plane and I love this plane, or even the fact that I'd never heard of this plane before and I wanted to have a, a piece of it. And uh, it, it kind of just grew into a semi-addiction slash passion, I guess. The Plane Tags fan club on Facebook shows off their collections, they talk about the best ones, and they make deals to buy, sell, and trade. When the group went from 10 to 20 to 100 to 200 to 300, were you blown away at that point? I was. It started out with me and, and my friend from high school, Andrew Rockman, just as a kind of a joke almost, and uh, people started finding out about it. We added a few more people, Rob Schneider, and uh, that was kind of the, us three were the first moderators. Back down the dusty desert road, I wanted to see where all of this airplane metal goes to to be turned into fine art and plane tags. About two and a half hours south in Torrance, I walk into the headquarters of MotoArt. How you doing, boss? How you doing? This is awesome. Thank you. I thought the boneyard was cool. The showroom is where plane pieces have been turned into wall art to chairs, chandeliers, mirrors. Dave's team has created pretty much everything you could imagine that could fit into a home or into an office. On the walls here, instead of moose heads, I got airplane heads. I got F-86, TBM Avenger, um, F-16. Then walking into the studio or factory where his team is making the art, expensive pieces going to clients around the world are in the process of being built. Lots of stuff going on. Um, you know, it, it almost looks like a museum in itself. We have a lot of old airplanes hanging off the wall and the ceiling. His teams are using engine pieces from a Southwest Airlines plane to make mirrors for customers, reception tables for an office made out of an old American Airlines MD-80, and conference tables made out of Boeing 767 seven fuselage sides. Conference tables can go for anywhere from 10 grand to 50,000 bucks. Over here, this is probably one of our most common pieces. I can't tell you, we probably made over a hundred of these. This is a fuselage conference table. Uh, the one common thing that we had with all these aircraft are windows and very distinctive look. So we make conference tables out of them, desks, bookshelves, picture frames, couches. You know, when I started this company, I mean, I, I saw that a lot of this aviation history was being destroyed. And, you know, that's what really inspired me was just keeping the history alive. And now with this economy and airlines grounding planes, Dave has a huge canvas to work with. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News in the California desert. In this unprecedented time, poetry is a beacon. It gives voice to the emotions within and is our go-to art at times of upheaval. ABC's Mark Remillard now. Poetry has been growing for the past several years. This is Jennifer Benka. And it's um, been really inspiring. Jennifer is the president and executive director of the Academy of American Poets. We're a national organization that champions poets and poetry. She says and over the past few years, poetry in America has seen an explosion in interest. And it's not just her perception. A 2017 survey from the National Endowment for the Arts found 28 million U.S. adults read poetry in the year prior, the highest readership on record in 15 years of conducting the survey. You might have also heard about a few really high-profile events in the last couple of years featuring poets and their work. In 2016, a man best known for his music was awarded one of the highest honors in literature, the Nobel Prize. Come gather people. 
The Swedish Academy said Bob Dylan was awarded the prize for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. You might have also heard that just last month, yet another American poet, Louise Glick, would receive the same honor. The prize given for, as the Nobel Committee says, Louise Glick's unmistakable poetic voice. But even if you aren't staying up on the latest developments in Stockholm and with the Nobel Prize Committee, you might have heard about this. America has voted. The winner is... On the 15th season of America's Got Talent, for the first time, a poet would claim the grand prize. It was surreal in a sense that, like, it almost didn't happen. This is 28-year-old Brandon Leake from Stockton, California. And before he worked his way up to the grand prize winner of America's Got Talent, Brandon was a teacher and then an academic advisor at a community college. And he says poetry has long been his outlet. In college, after the unfortunate passing of my best friend Bernard Daniels, um... I began uh, writing and sharing my spoken word. He would found the nonprofit Called to Move that would hold workshops in the Stockton area, helping to spread the art to others. And that's something that he also did on America's Got Talent, as he told the judges, who, like me and perhaps you, don't really get poetry. I'm a great intro for you. Brandon's meteoric rise on America's Got Talent may come as a surprise, given that no poet has ever made it past the early audition phases. But when you hear his poetry, you can understand why it has such an effect. When I'm up here on stage, they call me Brandon. <laughs> his poetry is personal and moving, and through his words that describe real-life events, he somehow finds a way to mold them into something bigger than just his own story. And no, I'm not afraid to admit it. My mother calls me Pookie at like the most inopportune moments. One of the poems he performed on the show is called Pookie, his mother's nickname for him, and talks about the fear she feels as a mother each time her son leaves the house. I don't understand why my mom's so concerned with my safety, praying for me as I leave the house on a daily... But it touches not just on the worry that any mother feels for their child, but about one of the cultural zeitgeists of our time, racial injustice, and what it's like when a black mother, like Brandon's mom, watches her son leave home. There is something so different about Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And his wit cuts deep when he says, And in that moment, I better understood my black mother's greatest fear was every time I leave her home, on the other side of my phone, will no longer be her son, will be America's next most popular hashtag. Brandon says one of the hardest things about a poem like this is the names keep changing. Today they're George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Jacob Blake. Those names were completely different two years, three years ago when I wrote the poem. That was Trayvon Martin, that was uh, Mike Brown. And it's sad that a poem can just change the names and still be applicable. But that is the power of poetry, says Jennifer Benka. It's like a painting, a still-life capture of a moment in time. In poetry, when you read a poem, um, you hear a person speaking directly to you, the reader, in a very intimate way. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Poetry's growing popularity is not an overnight story, says Benka. America has had a long history of esteemed poets such as Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, and plenty more. And while poetry may be having a moment now, Benka says it's something that's been building for years. And of course, 
There is social media and the micro moments of reflection that have transformed how poets can share their work and how readers consume it. Poetry is perfectly shareable on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. For Brandon, now that he's won America's Got Talent, his career is off and running. So what's next for poetry? Well, Benka says that's not totally clear. She expects it to continue growing in popularity. But more importantly, she says what happens next for poetry will be based on what happens next out there. And I do think that poets are at the vanguard of, of culture and social change and social justice. American poetry right now is a bright light, a bright light that we have to follow. I'm Mark Remillard, ABC News. The pandemic has changed cities across America in a whole lot of ways as we adjust to a new normal and try to curb the spread of the virus. Broadway shows are suspended until May of 2021, leaving many artists out of work and an emptiness in the heart of Manhattan, where theaters would usually be filled with hundreds of guests each night. But as the saying goes, the show must go on. And ABC's Lionel Moise has a look now at how one group has found a unique way to do just that. Broadway is alive in New York City through the sounds of one of the most iconic performers, Prince. The show is, it's really like a, an elaborate concert series. Aaron Marcellus plays lead in Purple Rain. It's part of the new Broadway at the Drive-In series at Radial Park in Astoria, Queens. You'll see the movie played, um, and then when the songs come, we're there live. Uh, full band, costumes, and everything. So you get, you know, you can kind of put yourself into the film. We cast on stage with Aaron some of the entertainment industry's finest, also featuring Nick Burroughs, Siobhan Ricci, Vanja Bokai, and Grammy-nominated singer Lanisha Randolph. Everyone's wearing masks, even though it's outside. Um, and so you can bring food, it's BYOB, or you can order food. You know, it's just a kind of nice, you feel like you're at a picnic, picnic watching a show and or you can be in your car. They bring the performances of the 1984 film to life with their vocals and passion. But by the end of the show, man, people are dancing and they're up on their feet and they're out, you know, screaming to the top of their lungs because we all have a bunch of stuff we just need to release. Radio Park is not only creating a great event to go to, but it's also helping creatives through the uncertainty of the pandemic, providing work and a sense of purpose to not only the singers, but also the band, the stagehands, producers, lighting and sound, concessions, the list goes on. We don't have jobs as arts workers, you know? So number one, to be able to do a show in the pandemic is just a blessing. It's a job in the city of dreams at a time it's gone dark. You know, when you think about pandemic relief, arts relief was the last and it's the, the, the least, but we are a huge part of the workforce. Executive producer Jeremy Shepard self-funded the project in planning. He wanted to ensure there was a safe space. 20,000 square feet where we place 50 picnic tables. So that is really socially distanced. The tables are each in their own marked box, 12 feet apart, one per group. Guests can also rent one of the 50 parking spots there, both options, $100 a group. If people are afraid, everyone's afraid. If people are celebrating, everyone's celebrating. So to be able to feel secure and celebrate feels like, oh my gosh, maybe we're getting someplace. 
also holiday movies and other Broadway shows in the works. The hope to find ways to bring New York together to celebrate the arts in an uncertain time. Again, Purple Rain's Aaron Marcellus. The world has changed. We don't have human touch like we had before. We can't hug and greet each other. So all we have is the energy that we put out, you know, come into a space safely outside and sing a song in unison and, you know, all of our senses in that way so that we can feel human and we can breathe. I think it's really important. Lionel Moyes, ABC News. Profiling the artists, artisans, and creators who inspire and enrich our lives. This is Celebrating the Arts from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, correspondent Aaron Katursky. A long, strange, trying year has arrived at Thanksgiving. What should be a time of gathering, of family, and of gratitude is yet one more moment altered by the pandemic. Gatherings will be smaller, family may be far away, expressions of gratitude may be harder to muster. For those who capture those expressions and try to find some meaning and beauty in them, it is also a challenging time. When you're meant to interact with people and spaces, what happens when that's no longer possible? And yet, we're counting on them. Photographers are capturing a weird, raucous, and tragic year, helping us look at art and life through the lens of our times. A time that, you know, we haven't experienced before. Renata Aller was born in Germany. She lives and works in New York in a light-filled 1800s-era Soho loft of exposed pipes, cast-iron columns, and tin-tiled high ceilings. The space is filled with breathtaking large-scale landscape photographs that have been her signature work over the last two decades. Can I have a cookie before you? Please. I don't want to do the crunching noise while you record. (laughs) I don't get cookies unless there's a guest. Oh, really? We sat distanced at opposite ends of her dining table to discuss her latest project, Sidewalk, that she created when New York City was the epicenter of the pandemic and largely locked down. I had invited people to visit me on the sidewalk. And it was really a genuine invitation, not just um, a photo project where I would book slots for people to come and be photographed. I, I never invited more than one person a day. So also the light had to be right, of course, and no rain, etc. And sometimes I went to visit somebody at their sidewalk if they couldn't come to mine. But the intention was really to connect. In those days of April and May, there was more isolation than connection. And Aller sought to capture a sense of community after forced distance. Sort of bring society together in a time when we've been so torn apart and take people out of the isolation. And I discovered that it wasn't just something a nice meeting and a conversation. And I realized that it was also very helpful for me. It wasn't just a selfless act at all. Um, Because we were all, I think we were all a bit in shock. Aller set out to document the impact of social distancing on her neighbors and friends. I remember the last person I hugged by choice a friend from London on the 28th of February. So I must have been already aware of it in the beginning of March. And I think we were just all a bit kind of numbed and traumatized by this, expecting it to go away and we'll just sit tight. But it also reminded me of the time 
after 9-11, we lived actually downtown in Tribeca. And I did a project then called Afterward, Faces of Tribeca. After 9-11, Aller took images of interiors, pointing her lens into the private spaces where people retreated in fear for their safety. This is the opposite. At that time, we were all scared for our own lives, really. There was a cowering. Yes, definitely. And, um, but, you know, this time around, um, I think it's more that I'm worried about other people. Because I sort of trust that I'm going to be okay as long as I'm very careful and sensible. And I think it's kind of brought up an empathy in us that that we're more aware of. For most of April and May, Renata hosted friends and neighbors on her sidewalk. She put her camera in self-timer mode and recorded these encounters, often the participants' first face-to-face contact in weeks. I started with Amy Good, my good friend. She said, well, what do you want me to bring? And I thought, I said, bring your guitar, your bass guitar. And I was thinking since, when I look at that photo, which is one of the iconic pictures, I think, I called that particular picture Guardians, Guardians of People's Hopes. And we're standing with our hands on our hearts and, you know, very firm. That guitar looks just like an AK-40 And we are doing it with love and music. Sidewalk is now posted online and will eventually be shown at the New York Historical Society. The subjects look sincere and silly and stoic and resigned. Normally, I think I would probably sit a bit closer to people than six feet. And with a mask also, it's harder to hear. So you have to be clearer in your communication. You have to talk to somebody as if it's a person who's hard of hearing, more considerate, and you're more aware of what you say because you can't just blubber away. Um, it's, it's, and if somebody else talks, you have to stop talking and listen. It's, it's a different way. And I think also you have to learn how to smile with your eyes. While the pandemic persists, Sidewalk can be viewed on Renata Alder's website. Traditional access to the arts has been limited. Virtual stopgaps can never replace the in-person shared experience, but her work is always worth a look, no matter the venue. As human beings, we always have to find our bearings. Our, if we go hiking in the mountains... We would constantly, subconsciously, of course, gauge where are we in relation to what we're looking at. So we always need to know where we're in space. That's just like one of those things that we have in us. I think we have a problem with that right now, and we've been having that for a while, to understand where are we in this, where are we in this scenario. With it comes, of course, then the emotional landscape as well. which doesn't make it easier to live in a pandemic when you can't cuddle and hug people. Every subject Renata Aller photographed is in a mask. Her exhibition forces us to look behind it. It reminds us to empathize, to remember how we can make precious connections even from afar. We have to remember the positive things that this time taught us. And we have to remember the pain also because there was so much and still is so much pain um, but we should remember them both, the pain and the beautiful moments, and try and carry them forward. 
but also realize that um, we're still in it. It's not over. Art at its best can inspire people to action, comfort them in times of uncertainty, heal and unify. ABC News entertainment correspondent Jason Nathanson tells us sometimes it does all of that while making for some pretty darn good TV. Aaron, through times of uncertainty and chaos in this country, whether it was the election recount in 2000 or 9-11 and the wars that followed, and now, during the pandemic and protests and extreme political divisiveness, I always find myself turning to one thing. Just the theme from The West Wing puts me in my happy place. The political drama about the fictional Bartlett administration ran for seven seasons on NBC, from 1999 to 2006, winning a couple of Peabody Awards and four straight wins for top drama at the Emmys, tied for the most all-time wins in that prestigious category. Victory is mine! Victory is mine! Great day in the morning, people! Victory is mine! It's on a bunch of lists, ranking it among the best TV shows of all time, thanks in large part to its soaring, inspiring speeches written by creator Aaron Sorkin. More than any time in recent history, America's destiny is not of our own choosing. We did not seek, nor did we provoke an assault on our freedom and our way of life. Whether it's President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, talking about a fictional bombing at a U.S. university. This is a time for American heroes. We will do what is hard. We will achieve what is great. This is a time for American heroes, and we reach for the stars. Or communications director Toby Ziegler, played by Richard Schiff, talking about unity while confronting a group of staffers about a White House leak. From the president and Leo on through, we're a team. We win together. We lose together. We celebrate and we mourn together. And defeats are softened and victories sweetened because we did them together. Every single episode that Aaron wrote uh, in those first four years had the potential for brilliance. Richard Schiff tells me that potential for brilliance was intimidating for him as an actor because he wanted to make sure he could deliver. It's like great poets, you know, they want the perfect sentence. Some of them kill themselves over the fact that they can't get there. You know, it creates uh, that tension. And and because that, that was present always, and because that desire to reach as close to that perfection as you can get was always there in those first four years. For those reasons, I would say, yeah, West Wing was was art. It felt a little bit like Michelangelo in the you know in the chapel trying to you know, paint upside down. It's uh, uh, it felt like we were creating something important at the very least. Yeah, to get quality material like that consistently as an actor on a TV show is rare. The senator's voting our conscience, Donna. She understands foreign aid. I've heard her talk about it. She's supposed to do what's right. No, she was elected, and she's supposed to do what the people think is right. Janelle Maloney played Donna Moss, head assistant to White House Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman, played by Bradley Whitford, and she tells me the best part of the week while filming was when they'd get a new script and read it together out loud for the first time. You go and have lunch with everyone and sit in the, um, the Roosevelt Room and... And we'd all sit there and all the writers and all the, the heads of all the departments and all the actors and all the guest actors who were just so excited to be there. And you, you really felt how special it was. But then when you heard it um, read out, you know, it was kind of shocking how good it was. Richard Schiff compared Aaron Sorkin's writing 
to poetry. Well, it was it's it's in meter. It's yeah, it's definitely poetry. It's it's no different than Shakespeare or David Mamet. And uh, you know, writes in meter. He writes in it's his is more of a jazz, uh, and um, Aaron is more of a of, of a classical. I would say it was music for sure. You're a good father. You don't have to act like it. You're the president. You don't have to act like it. You're a good man. You don't have to act like it. You're not just folks. You're not plain spoken. Do not, do not, do not act like it. Now, one criticism of the West Wing is that it was pure liberal fantasy. The Bartlett administration was Democratic and Republicans often the opposition in the world of the show. But do you know what great art has the power to do? Transcend politics. Uh, my name is John Ziegler. I am the senior columnist at Mediaite. And I'm also the host of the uh, Individual One podcast. John Ziegler is a leading conservative commentator and enthusiastic West Wing fan. Yeah, absolutely. And despite his political leanings, he very much enjoyed spending his Wednesday nights with the West Wing crew. The thing that held the West Wing together was that there were rules. There were rules of life and politics that everyone seemed to accept. And they were at least somewhat rational. Uh, in a post-Trump world, those rules have been obliterated. So, yes, I'm a conservative, but I'm a rationalist above all else. And I, I would prefer to live in a world that made some semblance of sense. And the West Wing world made some sense, even though it wasn't the world I would like to live in. The world we currently live in makes no sense. During the run of the West Wing, Ziegler was a popular conservative TV and talk radio show host in Philadelphia, Louisville, and Los Angeles. And I distinctly remember mentioning West Wing on the air uh, numerous times. And Ziegler says while the show may not have changed anyone's mind politically, he certainly didn't become more liberal by watching it, what it did do for him was offer some insight into the minds of those that had different views. It was a different era as far as partisanship is concerned. I mean, I, I mean, there wasn't the same kind of, well, you, 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 you have to be on one team or the other, and therefore you can't even, you know, enjoy a TV show that's dominated by the other team. I mean, that just never occurred to me back in, in that era. Uh, but that certainly is the way it is today. I mean, the, you know, we're, we really are split. Uh, and I don't think it's a positive thing at all because we've lost the ability to understand where the other side is coming from. Ziegler is more than right. The world has changed dramatically since the era of the West Wing. But again, back to art. And another thing good art can do is inspire people to try and change the world. So it's a state senator, Eric Lesser. Uh, I'm a state senator in Massachusetts. Did the West Wing inspire you to go into politics? Uh, in part, absolutely. I remember being in high school when the West Wing first came out and really feeling like, you know, the, the show was speaking to me. Uh, it was a little bit of escapism, frankly, for young progressives at the time, because uh, George Bush was the president and, you know, he had a very kind of Texas cowboy mentality to him. Josiah Bartlett was kind of everything we were hoping a president could be in terms of kind of being a bit cerebral and of course, very progressive in orientation and politics. And so I kind of latched onto the show and, you know, watched it. And it, you know, really as a devoted fan through my high school and college years, which is really when I was forming my opinions about politics and really deciding how I was going to get my career going in politics and advocacy work. 
Before becoming an actual politician himself, Lesser worked in the West Wing as an assistant to Obama advisor David Axelrod. When people kind of asked me to describe my job, I would often say, well, I was kind of like the Donna Moss character. Was the bubble bursted all though when you got to the White House and found that it was probably <laughs> nothing like the West Wing? Uh, yes and no. I mean, actually, in a lot of respects, they got it pretty right in, in a lot of respects. I mean, one thing I remember about the show and there, people used to joke about this is it was like they never sat down, like everything was happening in the hallway. It was constantly sort of walking movement meetings. And that definitely is <laughs> realistic. Do you mind if I talk to you while we walk? Well, we may as well get used to having meetings in the quarters from now on. Maybe our only hope. But what was realistic when the show premiered a little over 20 years ago isn't necessarily realistic now, Lesser says, especially in today's political climate. You know, The West Wing was a very aspirational show for people. And, uh, and I do think that that captured, again, like a, a real sense of optimism and of, of possibility. And it's sad that it does feel like in this moment, uh, you, you don't even know if there would necessarily be space for a show like that now. I think a lot of times people watch West Wing now almost as a form of escapism from what politics has become today. And that's what art does, captures a specific time and place and crystallizes it in amber. And then when things get tough, you can turn to it again and again for comfort, joy, and inspiration for those of us that watch it and for those like Janelle Maloney who were a part of it. Do you miss making the show? Totally. You know, I the the bar was so high there that um, that I think that it's there'll never be another job like that. Just the bar was really, really high. And um, and the love and the humor and the, the friendship was just off the charts. So it was this combination of, of success and longevity and like minded people. And so, you know, you don't you don't think that that's going to happen more than once. The nation's schools scrambled to keep teaching this year, and while students may not like it, reading, writing, and arithmetic is still doable via Zoom and opening a book. The arts can be more challenging. How do you translate hands-on physical instruction into learning online? ABC's Andy Field looked in on a suburban New York City instructor's day and discovered just how she put her creative skills to work. So girls, two to a table, okay, don't forget. Thanks to the pandemic, this Westchester County, New York art class may have more in common with a hospital than Da Vinci Studio. Make sure you sanitize your hands. Got it. Stay, uh, keep your social distancing. It's kind of tricky because it really hasn't, there's no protocol for the art room. There's instead, I mean, this was more like modeling after surgery in a hospital. Any instrument that's touched, the students can have gloves on, there's sanitizer on every table. Every student has their own paintbrush available or I'll distribute the paint with gloves on. Sometimes the clay sticks. And Artist Christine Seaman reinvented the wheel and the paintbrush and the easel and virtually everything you need to teach art since COVID froze time and sent everyone packing last March. Everything was just left. Artwork was left hanging on the walls. The ceramic pots were drying on the shelves. Everything was just abandoned. So Christine and her art department got creative. They each have their own art kit that they can use in the classroom. And then in the case of a resurgence or if they have to learn from home, if someone is not feeling well, they can take their supplies home and work virtually in the classroom. So we have to pivot around and do both. 
And there was even a little undiscovered science here. Yeah, so make it round and then you're going to sort of smash it into like a cookie. But right now everyone's working with clay, so they all have their own container full of their own clay. We don't even know like how germs are carried around and if they even last in clay. So we're just taking the most responsible approach possible. And when we clean up, what do we need to do to the table? Christine's students, more fortunate than most across the country, this private school had plenty of room to socially distance, so most are back in class, at least until the weather turns bad. Yeah, the other departments in the arts are doing similar things. Our music classes are outside. They're investing in special singing masks. And there are still students looking in via Zoom. Christine says that's not the ideal way to learn art. You can never really replace that whole social gathering feeling of a classroom. Now, as an art teacher, you sort of put your, your heart and soul in a demonstration. Oh wait, do you, what do you, do you just take water? In a math class, you might show a systematic way of solving a problem, but in art, you're sort of demonstrating not only the technique or maybe measurement or perspective, but you're also, you're demonstrating your own creativity. That process, it, is really hard to translate on a video or online because it's such a personal experience. Just see how it goes and enjoy this. And then and while the cost of gas and other typically high demand products dropped, art supplies, not so much. And the vendors are all back ordered. You know, you can't get watercolors right now. You know, so there's a lot of navigating. There are school boards and parents who may think, well, if you have to cut something in the pandemic, put the arts on hold, thinking students need basics first. But Christine Seaman says it's creativity that brings those basics to life and also improves students' mental health. The arts, especially the um, applied arts and hands-on, are so much more important because these, these kids right now, these students are looking at screens all day and even their downtime and staying at home is only so much they can do and they rely on their screens for socializing. So this one moment of the day where they can really decompress and just get their hands into something, the physicality of it, it's just so important for them. Do you want to go to the back table? There's only one person. Create, clean, repeat. The new normal in schools still able to teach art in person. Christine Seaman says she can't wait till her students can get back to the messy, virus-free, hands-on classes that she says help imagine what's next. Okay, we put the sanitizing box in the front of the classroom now. And there's With Christine Siemens in Westchester County, New York, I'm Andy Field, ABC News. We see it in cities and neighborhoods in every corner of the globe, and this year in many American cities, street art is turning out to be a welcome symbol of unity for a very divided nation. ABC's Eric Mallow now. We saw it in the news cycle throughout the summer. Anger across the U.S., video of protesters clashing with law enforcement, and pictures of people of color who have lost their lives in interactions with police officers. We heard their names, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and several others. Street art and murals memorializing those lives lost have popped up across America. In Minneapolis, there's a blue and gold mural of George Floyd painted across a brick wall. A 7,000-foot square picture of Breonna Taylor's face at an Annapolis, Maryland park. And here in New York on Houston Street, almost 2,000 miles away from Colorado, where 23-year-old Elijah McClain was killed in a police interaction last August, a mural of McClain playing the violin, one of his hobbies, with the words, I'm sorry, written next to him. Vince Ballantyne is a professional artist. He spray-painted the mural of McLean in New York. One thing that he kept saying repeatedly 
was I'm sorry. Valentine says when he memorializes someone like McLean, he's not really trying to send one clear message. There's a beauty in being a bit ambiguous to the point like the words are there and he's there and it's like, oh, okay, cool. But a lot of people still don't know that story. So when they look at it, you know, they kind of have to interpret it. They kind of have to say, like, well, what am I looking at? Valentine says one way to use public spaces is to raise the voice of others. So people were saying, like, you know, we really don't want to get too political. There wasn't really space for that to really resonate. But now, you know, in the street art world, you know, it's like sometimes people just don't care. They don't care, you know, if we get permission to do this. We're going to do it anyway. This is a form of directly expressing something without asking for anyone's permission. Sabina Andron is a lecturer in architectural history and theory at the Bartlett School of Architecture in London. Andron studies a lot of street art, so much so that her friends affectionately nicknamed her Dr. Wall. She says city walls are actually important canvases during times of unrest. They give people the opportunity to assert that their needs aren't being met by public institutions. If we look at the history of all of these forms of wall marking, most of them do come from a countercultural and defiant and revolutionary aspiration. And essentially, they are ways of affirmation that people who don't have more powerful ways to affirm themselves use. Andron believes street art can actually be used as a tool for unity. Maybe what happens when we encounter messages in the street, there's kind of a questioning that can happen there inside us where we think, okay, who is this person? What made them want to say this? Vince Ballantyne wants his work to build a better understanding of one another, not as a symbol to pit people against each other. And that humanization, they believe, really comes through seeing street art in person. They're done with such um, energy, and I think that translates. If we see something that's of a bigger scale, it impresses us through that. Their stature is meant to let public institutions know loudly that there are people hurting in America— and they want change. Street art is doing what it always does, which is it holds up a mirror. It shows us who we are. The importance of street art to this moment in America is that it's a symbol that can be used to express a desire for unity. It's not just a demand, but also an invitation to communicate and better know one another. The one thing that I always just want to drive home, it's not Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. It was who is this person that's on the wall. And that by itself does so much to make things move, you know, because it's not a command, it's a question. I'm Eric Malo, ABC News. Being in a choir is a lot more than just singing. It's a sense of community and fellowship. Friendship is forged through music. Due to the pandemic, the American Choral Directors Association urged choirs not to convene until after a vaccine is available. And now, ABC's Daria Albinger tells us some enterprising maestros have given their choirs something to sing about again. Since the start of the pandemic, it seems our lives are being consumed by Zoom or a program like it from work to school to working out. In many cases, if you choose to worship, that also means doing it remotely, and that creates some new opportunities for those who provide the soundtrack for the service. 
the choir. People have been very enthusiastic about it. You know, it's given people who were locked in at home pretty much something to keep productive with over the summer. Gen Potter is the organist and choir director at Scarborough Presbyterian Church in Briarcliff Manor, New York, and he says conducting a virtual choir creates some new challenges because he's no engineer. We started out with some rough times trying to make this virtual choir thing work because neither of us had any experience with that at all. Well, I had cut very primitive sound for internet radio and back in the 70s I did college radio. So I could edit sound like with a razor blade and tape. <laughs> and but and I, I sort of had to figure out how that applied first to GarageBand and then to Logic Pro X. That's his wife, Christine, an author, poet, and singer who now also serves as the choir's chief mixer-upper, as she calls herself. The first time I did this, it was a steep learning curve for me. I mean, I had one of our altos send me a track to Sweet Hour of Prayer just because it was easy, and I sang soprano, and I kind of had this Helen Keller at the well moment when I put it (laughs) together, you know, it was like, oh my God, I can do this thing. The first time I lined up the choir together at the beginning of an anthem and I heard us all take a breath together digitally, I cried. Charlie Marge, head chanter at St. Mary's Antiochian Orthodox Church in Boston, helped take his choir online too. Our choirs are sitting at home. They're not able to participate. What's something that we can do to get them to be able to feel like they can still be part of a choir even though they can't sing as a choir at their churches? Now Charlie is part of an even bigger project, which is bringing singers from across the nation together for a virtual holiday performance. Marina Busamrabal chairs the Department of Sacred Music for the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America. Since March, we've been pretty well banned from our churches. Two or three people at a time were able to sing. We had to get real creative really fast. So she convinced dozens to head into their home offices, onto their back porches, and in some cases, yes, into their bathrooms to upload their performance. Hi, I'm Frankie Perez, and I'm singing the tenor line. Some, like Frankie, are just good. To visit our Savior came. Some like Stratus Mandalakis are pros. On newborn day, our dawn most fair. Some like eight-year-old Delia Vallejo Justi are future pros. And we that sat in dark and gloom. And some of us are probably better talkers than singers. Down from heaven's holy height. Thankfully, Charlie says being off key a note or two isn't a problem. If someone made a big mistake, you could just basically turn them off during the mistake and turn them back on. Ken says as much as he loves the idea of a virtual choir, he still prefers being in person. You can't stop and correct somebody and say, no, I want this, please sing it this way because they've already got their thing into you. You have to use what they sent you. The Potters are also quick to add that it really isn't just about the music. The virtual choir also provides a companionship for the people in the choir. We have a choir Zoom every Friday at five o'clock and it's a virtual cocktail party just like, you know, other workplaces do. And uh, so that's 
companionship and that's comforting. And it remains to be seen if virtual choirs really are a thing or they're just a pandemic fad. We're going to be back eventually. So at that point, does this really cool tradition that we've developed since the pandemic go away? I'm not going to miss trying to sync up 11 or 12 tracks. I'm not going to miss the grunt work of it. I am going to miss the magic. You know, all of a sudden it turns into a choir and uh, it's magic every week and I'm going to miss that. So until we're singing together again in person, we'll just keep singing. The arts may not be top of mind for everyone in uncertain and frightening times like these. Yet the arts are fundamental. They're powerful and important. Creative expression is an innate need. It makes us resilient, gives us hope, reminds us we're not alone. That's why we're celebrating the arts. Thanks for joining us, and happy Thanksgiving. Celebrating the Arts was presented by ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio.